Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. I'm Izan Hadiswalda Gabriel, a postdoctoral researcher at African Cities Research Consortium. Today I'm joined by Professor Diana Mitlin to discuss the role of coalition building in facilitating inclusive urban reform. Diana Mitlin is a professor of global urbanism at the Global Development Institute of the University of Manchester. Diana is also CEO of African Cities Research Consortium. CRC is a six-year investment by FCDO to fund new operationally relevant research to address intractable development challenges in African cities. Welcome, Diana. Thank you, Azana. It's good to be here. Thank you very much. Let's have a crack at it. Uh, I have the pleasure, you know, to read your forthcoming article on on area development and policy journal, the contribution of reform coalitions to inclusion and equity lessons from urban social movements. May you please explain to us what is coalition and what constitutes an urban reform? Thank you. Thank you, Azana. So, When we sat down to think about it, and I I say we because although um, I authored this article, I think certainly the definition was very much a collective process. So we understood the urban reform coalitions that we are um, trying to operationalize in this way. Firstly, they're groups of diverse stakeholders. They might include civil society, state agencies, maybe private enterprises. Frequently, they also involve people like myself, an academic. And they perceive a benefit in coming together to achieve common goals. We make no assumptions about how long they come together for, but the starting point is that it's not a trivial engagement. It's not a month or two months. It's it's a more substantive period, a longer period of time. We see them as motivated by the benefits of alliance building. So they recognize that their individual agency objectives, perhaps their personal objectives in the case of academics, um, can be advanced through collaboration. But at the same time, the benefit of a coalition, and this really, I think, is quite important, the benefit of a coalition is that individuals and organizations maintain their autonomy. So then they act through discussion, they negotiate to agree common goals, they often get involved in in co-producing knowledge and potentially in mobilizing resources, particularly, of course, when the state is involved. They develop processes that legitimate ideas and that discuss and share opinions and often form a common view on solutions to address agreed problems. Now, we recognize that in many cases, coalitions are formal. They involve formal agencies, but we observe that often the coalitions themselves are informal and they often uh, involve informal groups and they involve informal residents and people who work informally. So there's a lot that's informal. Of course, the informal groups may be informal elite groups. So we don't make the assumption that, that all informal groups are low income and disadvantaged. That's the definition of of coalitions. In terms of reform, we focused initially on the objectives of the African Cities Research Consortium, which are to address the challenges of economic prosperity and poverty reduction in cities with an eye to the climate emergency and, and really conscious that we don't want to exacerbate that climate emergency. 
So we started with, you might say, a very lowest common denominator. What are reform coalitions that can advance prosperity and address poverty? The coalitions that we look at in this paper, the coalitions that I've learned so much from, have a really strong focus on addressing the needs and interests of excluded groups, low-income and disadvantaged groups. So the kind of things that they're thinking about are ways to secure tenure, address service deficiencies, upgrade settlements, maybe develop affordable housing, think about the needs of informal workers, protecting them from market abuse, sometimes protecting them from actions the state makes to make informal trading very difficult, for example. So we have a broad understanding of reform. We see it as somehow addressing the needs of people who are disadvantaged and excluded from other processes of urban development. And we recognize that in order to really address the needs of cities in the 21st century, we need to find ways in which they can be equitable and inclusive. Back to you. Thank you very much, Diana, for the very uh, lucid and uh, informative explanation on both concepts and some of the issues that you raised, you know, we will pick it up and further explore it shortly. But to take you a little bit uh, to the background of, you know, how you write this article, can you, I mean, it would be a very difficult uh, question, but can you please briefly walk us uh, through your activist academic journey, you know, that led you to write the article? Mm. Let me let me share briefly the learning journey, as you rightly say, that I've been on. So the African Cities Research Consortium is tasked to think about how urban reform can take place such that we address the needs of, of excluded populations in cities and help all populations advance their goals, improve, improve their well-being. And it really catalyzed in my own mind a thinking about what are the conditions under which that takes place. Now, I would hesitate to say these are uh, sufficient conditions, but when I looked at my own history and the groups I'd worked with and how they had advanced the needs and interests of excluded populations, I was really very struck by the effort that they put in to building coalitions. So in the early 90s, I started to work with some of the community organizations in South Africa and India that then came together to form SDI, Slum Shack Dwellers International. And that they were groups living in informal settlements. They were groups who, whose agenda was always being ignored. The first ones I learned from from the ones in South Africa, who, who really uh, lived alongside the civics, who were representing the needs and interests of black populations in townships. So these groups were working with people who'd really been excluded. And immediately they began to think about, okay, who are the one people we need to reach out to? What are the ways in which we can successfully influence the state? And then I worked closely with the Asian Coalition for Housing Rights. And the Asian Coalition had grown up uh, around exchanges between community groups, NGOs, and academics in the Asian context. It had been catalyzed by evictions that took place around the Olympics in Seoul in, in 88. So that was also a group that supported each other to put in place successful urban strategies. And they also worked in many cases with these coalitions. So when I looked back at my history, when I looked back at the groups I'd learned so much from, I really could understand that coalitions were key to catalyzing change and to supporting good ideas and good practices and good projects when they emerged. Yeah, impressive uh, journey. Uh, 
you know, building up on uh, on that, you know, what, what's the role of Reform Coalition in African Cities uh, Research Consortium and its theory of change? So, um, well, one of the things that we, we really thought about when we developed our theory is change is what are the necessary and sufficient conditions. And, and when we began to craft that model, we really honed in on on four aspects, one of which is reform coalitions. So let me start with some of the other aspects. And again, this was looking back at change processes that we felt were more successful. In terms of radical change, in terms of major efforts at redistribution, organized communities are really critical. The disadvantaged groups pressing for change, that might be people who've been left out of social protection, uh, for example. So community health volunteers in Nairobi really got got badly affected in the beginning of COVID because they were not included in the social protection measures that the government was rolling out for other programs. So they organized, so they pressed for change and the government was convinced and began to think about ways of including them. So organized citizens are clearly key. I would also say that what organized citizens do is they they change the way in which elites are perceiving their realities. So elites will respond to citizens who are organized enough to threaten their interests. They'll begin to offer other ideas. They'll begin to offer new policy initiatives, maybe new programming. So I think you see those things coming through. Even in the experience of Addis, which I know you know so well, when when young people rioted, the government also responded with employment initiatives to think, how can we address these issues? Then you need really uh, a civil servant, public officials who can respond to the political imperative with practical ideas who have been educated or who have had otherwise exposure or experiences that mean that when a politician says, I think we need to do something to address this demand, address this need, have in a sense a, a portfolio of suggestions that are more likely than less likely to work. So you need that to be in place or else the political moment is lost and and, uh, ideas and policies and programs that are put forward are not successful. So you need those two things to be in place. Associated with that, we need to really build a momentum among political elites that they can reform and they can find ways to manage this trajectory. So informed by their officials and catalyzed by protest, they become committed to a reform process. But we really see that these reform coalitions are important. Why are they important? They're important in helping to translate the perspectives of disadvantaged groups into a language that motivates elites to look at new solutions, to believe that it is possible to find a way that can be, um, even if not win-win, and in some cases it's win-win, at least they don't lose too much. So they don't respond in a repressive way. So we think that coalitions can be important there. They can really be important in engaging the officials and making sure that they are well informed about solutions, making sure, for example, when projects and programs really run into challenges, that there's a group that will help to take them forward, that can can provide new ideas, that can reassure them that it's the best way, that can reduce the risks of action. So we really see these reform coalitions as very key. They're key to nurturing new ideas. They're key to articulating 
ideas that that perhaps are working elsewhere and making sure they're understood within their local context. They're key in translating frustrations into practical solutions to address frustrations. They're key in holding governments to account as they go forward. So in checking around reforms and reporting on reforms and maintaining momentum. So our coalitions are really uh, a glue, a glue that makes sure that the process sticks together to build a critical mass and the moment is not lost. You can say catalyzing the reform. You know, some people, you know, confuse uh, coalitions because most people associate coalitions with political party coalitions, you know, established uh, to run government. And there are also, you know, social movement uh, coalitions that lobby for uh, certain change, such as climate change. And in the urban studies, there are, you know, gross uh, coalitions uh, which try to revitalize inner city uh, areas. So what are the commonality between these different kinds of coalitions uh, and what is specific or peculiar about uh, inclusive urban reform coalitions? That's a really interesting question. Um, And I must say, once I became, once I recognized the... uh, propensity of coalitions when I look back at these initiatives that I'd learned so much from, successful reform coalitions, I I really became aware that there was this much wider literature. So these kind of party political coalitions you talk about when no government has a, a majority and they have to form a coalition government, that's clearly something that many people read about and hear about. That is a long way from our kind of coalitions. That is a very formal agreement generally where they know exactly what the terms are and and they have to deliver together. That's not so similar to what we're talking about. The the growth coalition literature is interesting and it really emphasizes the importance of the state. I think in the context of the work of the African uh, Research Consortium, we are very conscious that, uh, of course, states have not been so significant in the African context. They've often been dismissed. There's been a move to reduce the value of the state, although uh, I think we can see a little bit more recently the states come back in. But what you see out of these this, this growth coalition literature in the US is that the state is so important, and it's important in a way that is often hidden. It's important for these companies, these entrepreneurs in the US, who want to reduce their risk, who want to make sure that they can access the land they want when they need it, and make sure that basic services and infrastructure are in place for their industrial endeavors. So what you see is, regardless of the rhetoric about the state not being so important, you really see in the urban context, the state is really very, very significant because it's managing activities, managing what what business needs and managing what citizen needs. When you have economic agglomeration taking place, there are often costs as well as potential rewards to that agglomeration. Making sure agglomeration works is very much what the state does. And actually, I realized in one of Stone's early papers, Clarence Stone, who wrote a lot about growth coalitions, that he also recognizes the potential of disadvantaged groups, community groups, residents, associations to use these spaces. Although he also says that in many cases, they're not powerful enough to do that. So these are not coalitions that come together to advance a business interest. They're really coalitions that come together to address citizen needs and uh, the needs and interests, as I said earlier, of more disadvantaged groups. There is a similarity. And I really wondered when I looked at the propensity of these 
groups, these social movements, residents, associations, informal traders, networks, to use coalitions. If they've been watching what the business does, if they've been watching what private enterprise does and thinks, oh, that's a good idea, we should go talk to the mayor. So I think some of that might be going on. They might be replicating some of those strategies, but there are some very distinct differences. I think some of those differences you can really see when you look at one of the examples I discuss in the paper, the uh, MDFs in Uganda, Municipal Development Fora. And one of those that I worked with, uh, I have worked with quite a bit in the past, is the one in Jinja, not one of the cities in the African Cities Research Consortium. We're working in Kampala in Uganda. But Jinja is a case, as an example of a reform coalition where I, I really learned a lot. So this is a coalition that meets monthly. Uh, it's generally chaired by uh, the town clerk and co-chaired by someone from one of the community groups. So we meet, they meet in the council chamber, the different groups involved, the public officials attend, councillors attend, community groups attend. Uh, there were business interests also in the meetings in which I took part, and I took part in meetings over a number of years. Their business interests, both from the informal businesses and from the formal businesses, their youth representatives, uh, and certainly women's representatives. So they're groups of people who come together. Now, one of the things, a business interest actually, was that the taxis, when they worked at nighttime, were, were lining up in the street. And other people complained, other traders and residents complained, that the taxis were not, were, were not so convenient when they lined up in the street. So the fora in Jinja worked out that one reason why this was the case was the taxi park didn't function well at night because there were no streetlights. So collectively, the fora tasked the local authority to provide streetlights, which meant that taxis could go back to where they normally worked from in the daytime. And the costs to other residents and businesses at nighttime were reduced. And that's a bit of an example of how these processes function. So if it was a large taxi firm, a corporate taxi firm, it might be conducting all these things behind closed doors. So it might be working with officials to make sure that there were streetlights such that their business interests could be developed. But these are groups who are not powerful enough to do that. But a fora that legitimates those kinds of claims and provides a platform where these problems can be identified and discussed, enables the problem to be resolved and makes sure, because of the frequency of meetings, make sure that the actions to address the problem are reported on and the state is held to account. So the public nature of the platform means that even groups that are not very powerful in the urban context have a chance to represent their needs and interests, to hear, to voice their perspective, to have the views of others who weigh in, how can we address this problem, and then local government to move forward. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a really interesting example, and uh, there is a lot uh, to pick on that. Would you, you know, care to give us, you know, more example, similar example, like the Municipal Development Fora, where, you know, disadvantaged groups managed to uh, influence much more inclusive uh, reform? There are so many examples, uh, some of which I touch on in the paper. So one of the ones I learned early on from the work of CODI, the Community Organization Development Institute in Thailand, really was around the needs of uh, waste recyclers. And these waste recyclers were, were coming, were obviously collecting waste and bringing it to be sold. And they sold to businesses higher up the recycling chain. 
And one of the problems was that they didn't, they often got cheated in that transaction because the scales were loaded against them. So the community groups working with the municipality were able to put in place a center where they could come and get their waste fairly weighed so they got a better price for it. And at the same time, they got health services provided alongside that because recycling waste can be quite difficult. You might get, uh, for example, cuts from tins that have been dumped in the waste. So having health services alongside business services becomes really important. So these kinds of things become possible once you have groups that, that come together and really work very constructively to address those problems. In the paper itself, we look at one city in Thailand, Nakhon Sawan, which was identified by those working with Cody as useful to explore because they've been so successful at upgrading informal settlements in the city. So Cody, which is a national government program, encourages these kinds of coalitions with a, with a really quite a formal aspect at the city scale when groups become working with them. Community groups ask to work with Cody because they're living in informal neighborhoods and they want to upgrade those neighborhoods. Cody supports those groups to gather data and work constructively with their municipalities. So the example in the paper talks about how these groups have come together, how the mayor has been committed to this process in this town, and how as a result, they've really been able to upgrade many of the informal settlements part supported by Cody, part supported by the community, and part supported by the municipality. So that's a further example. One of the other examples, which is a slightly different strategy, is the work of the Urban Resource Centre in Karachi. Now, the URC is not in itself a coalition, but it's really tried to use knowledge and research and a platform which enables low-income groups to come together to, to blend organisation and knowledge to engage uh, elites in the city. And in so doing, it's catalyzed coalitions around particular issues. So one of the coalitions I think that it catalyzed, a coalition using our definition, not the language of the URC, one of the coalitions it catalyzed was a group who challenged evictions to establish the Liari Expressway. The Liari Expressway was a plan to put in a road which went straight through neighborhoods where low-income groups were living. And really, as a result of documenting the difficulties that communities would face from this program, they were able to modify the plans of the municipality in order to reduce the number of evictions. So those kinds of things, those kinds of platforms, the kinds of ways in which knowledge can be presented, communities can organize to articulate and amplify their voice become important in influencing the choices that elites make around development in their cities. Thank you very much. Very interesting and make it much more concrete uh, our understanding of Urban Reform Coalition. But these platforms or these uh, coalitions, you know, they're, they bring on board, you know, different uh, stakeholders with different capabilities and with different relative power. For example, you know, state officials, planners or uh, civil society organizations. H how to ensure that, you know, disadvantaged groups, you know, are heard or their concern is, you know, seriously taken care of? You know, what lessons could we draw that, you know, they are properly uh, included or empowered in that process? That's a really serious question because, of course, there is a great power imbalance. Indeed, it is the power imbalance that motivates 
urban social movements and residents associations to form coalitions with groups that they think might be friendlier to them. So I think we we should recognize that in a sense, coalitions are not a grand plan from someone like me, an academic. It's an observation about what's going on on the ground. Why are at least some of these groups interested in forming coalitions? I think that Understanding the problem in that way is instructive in understanding what are the power imbalances and how do groups address them. Let me just start with an example from Ginger. So, and in fact, it's an example in which our students at the University of Manchester got drawn in. So there was an upgrading being discussed in a neighborhood in Ginger, but the upgrading plans were very dominated by those who owned land in the neighborhood. They lived in the neighborhood, but they owned a house a little bit of land, and they rented rooms to tenants. So the tenants were being left out of the process. And that was of concern to the federation, the Ugandan Slum Dwellers Federation, which was the, one of the community participants in the forum. So the, the Ugandan National Slum Dwellers Federation drew in the students from Manchester who were visiting the federation in Ginger, drew them into documenting the ways in which tenants were being left out. They'd asked the students to accompany community leaders when they talked to different tenants and just write down what they were hearing. And then they used the students a further way. They asked the students to present to the Municipal Development Forum about their observations around the neighborhoods that they'd visited. So the students shared this observation that they'd accompanied community leaders who talked to tenants and the tenants had represented their frustration about being left out. So this to me is a good example of how some of the power disparities are addressed. It doesn't solve the problem entirely, but really as a result of that, everyone at the forum became aware that this neighborhood about which upgrading was being discussed was not being very inclusive about who was being considered when the plans were being put forward. So I think that's really one example. I think one of the ways in which, so the, the coalitions are used as a platform in which voices can be heard. I think the second way in which coalitions are used, and this is tricky, I've observed, is tricky, is around data. So communities often gather data to demonstrate the scale of the problem. This is a strategy, a tactic used by SDI, Slum Shack Dwellers International, and the Ocean Coalition for Housing Rights. And both of these groups encourage communities to collect data, for example, about how many living people are living in informal settlements, about how many people don't have access to municipal water, how many people might be unable to access streets at times of flooding. They might be cut off from the city, although they can be really close to the main road. But obviously, if you've got a drain, the drain's flooded, it's impassable. So they collect data around this. And again, the coalitions provide platforms at which data can be presented. That data helps elites understand the challenges in their city differently. It often helps officials who are often lacking information about, about the scale of need and also the, the, the nature of need, exactly how people are being disadvantaged. You know, for example, is, is the problem that there's uh, no access to water or is the problem that there is access to water, but there's no water in the pipes for quite considerable periods of time? So that data is really important. I think they are also used as platforms through which organized communities can present their own solutions. So 
Of course, when groups of people come together and identify problems, it's not long before someone says, oh, but we have to find a way to address this need. So that often comes up in these discussions. And communities can then suggest ways that might work better for them. They may be, for example, uh, suggesting a way to manage a toilet block. Again, going back to the example of ginger, one of the things that's happened in ginger is that there are communities have built community sanitation blocks, and actually the municipality has also built community sanitation blocks. And the community used that space to explain how they thought they could build more cheaply and how they could help the municipality to develop their blocks more cheaply. So they become platforms in which communities can express need, in which communities can address the scale and nature of that need, and also where groups can express solutions. That does not mean, of course, that power is equal. And communities, I would say, are often broadly positive, but are also frustrated. And this really goes back to something I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. The organizations remain autonomous. So frustrated communities often organize outside of the coalition at the same time as participating in the coalition. And one of the examples um, that we also look at is work that's gone on in Nairobi. We've drawn collectively in the African Cities Research Consortium on the experience of the Makuru Special Planning Area. And I've also learned an immense amount through observing how different groups in Nairobi have come together to advance a plan in this area, neighborhood, with privately owned land to, to think about how things can be improved. Now, even as the communities were engaging in the Murakuru special planning area, in the debates, meetings, uh, consultations that took place around that, they were also organizing demonstrations to protest against evictions. So it wasn't that they had to buy into everything that the Nairobi City County government was proposing. The county government participated very actively in the Murakuru Special Planning Area. They didn't have to agree with everything the county government was doing. They still had space outside of the coalition to protest. And that seems to be important in understanding how community groups manage power within and beyond coalitions. Yeah, interesting. Uh, this is iteratively using, you know, contention, collaboration and uh, co-production. Uh, one thing that is key in, in your uh, examples is that, you know, the organization of uh, disadvantaged groups is very much uh, important. But there is always, you know, as you have touched upon in Jinja and in different places, uh, that there is a conflict of interest, particularly in the informal settlements between structure owners, tenants, landowners. So, you know, how to overcome those conflict of interest and build solidarities? What example, you know, what further example can you provide us? Mm. I think that's challenging, definitely challenging. There are many different interests in low income neighborhoods and among groups who work in the same trade. Indeed, often groups, of course, who work in the same trade, they may collaborate in some regards. So, for example, people who sell fruit and vegetables may come together to go to a wholesale market, but then they divide up the goods and each sell in different points within their neighborhood. So they collaborate, but of course, at some level, they're also competing with each other. People who live in uh, informal settlements, as you said, you may have conflict between landowners and tenants. 
You may have conflict between some people who are doing economic activities, for example, a workshop or a shabin, which is an informal bar, and residents who don't want noise or pollution. So there are lots of challenging conflicts. I think it's very difficult for coalitions to respond to groups that are not organized. I think even, um, I don't mean formally organized, they can be informally organized, but unless they have some capacity to come together, to represent themselves, to identify a collective need and interest, then if they remain very fragmented and atomized individuals, then they're very weak. And I, I think it's hard to see really how outcomes address the needs of those groups. It's very challenging. Um, I think it's important that more powerful players think about that problem. But at the same time, I don't I don't think it's a problem that we can pass on to organizations of people living in informal settlements and traders' organizations. They cannot be held to be responsible for making a process fully inclusive. It's a collective challenge. It's not a challenge just for them. True, true. I mean, moving on, uh, the other challenge, in particularly in the big uh, and capital cities of the global south, is you know land value. You know the uh, land developers, landowners, you know tend to dominate uh, urban planning uh, and governance decisions. Uh, and together with this, there is also a narrowing space of, you know, participatory uh, urban development and, you know, reversal in local uh, democratization. In this context, you know, how, you know, inclusive reformers, you know, could flourish? Mm. I think there are definitely circumstances that are more favorable and circumstances that are more challenging. I also think some of what where this lands is the skill of the leadership within the more disadvantaged groups, which can manage a difficult political context quite well. Let, let me uh, illustrate what I mean. I think, firstly, in the case of developers, that's one challenge. Often developers are primarily interested in inner city land yeah. rather than land on the periphery. One of the things that um, I drew on in uh, the paper, I've drawn obviously a, a range of literature, and there was an example from policy councils in Brazil that I actually found very fascinating and really resonated with my experience. So this paper discussed experiences with policy councils in two Brazilian cities and was somewhat pessimistic about this because they said that when it, they get to talk about inner city land, the community groups are excluded from the process, the favela associations, they're not included in that. That's the developers. But at the same time, that still leaves a lot of land in which there was a much more collaborative and constructive engagement about how the municipality through the policy council could support favela upgrading. So I think that if disadvantaged, excluded communities become so powerful that they're challenging for inner city land, that might be very difficult. They might well conflict with developers. But for the most part, developers are rarely that interested in low-income neighborhoods. So that's really that big a problem. Let's move, move to this other group, this uh, landowners group. And I think they may, may be difficult to manage. There's a lot of differences in context. Often they're small landowners rather than large landowners. And the state is in many cases an important landowner. One of the advantages as a coalition is it can work out what land the state owns and it can table that land very publicly, which can restrict the ability of the state to do private deals. But that's a lot of work. Now, this is where I think in part it 
depends a little bit on the strategy, the strategic capabilities of community leaders. They need to really organize themselves. They need to collect data on who owns what land. They need to find a way of presenting that in a reasonably neutral fashion. And they need to manage the process if, for example, different people claim ownership of land and want to use it for other purposes, either transport infrastructure, arguing that's in the public interest, or some other kind of infrastructure. So it's tricky to manage this. I think that even governments that are deeply hostile to a more progressive urban agenda may face challenges to their legitimacy because they're so exclusionary, in which case community groups have to really try and negotiate the space that opens up to them and find ways to build that space. So, for example, communities that can demonstrate successful upgrading are in a much better position to then claim the next piece of land. The um, Mungano Alliance, who are one of the community groups that really triggered the Makuru SPA process, they had successfully upgraded another neighborhood in Nairobi that was with public land and done a development called Kambimoto in the neighborhood of Haruma. So they were more able to draw support from the county government and indeed from other stakeholders because they could show, okay, if if you compromise on Makuru, if you agree that people can stay in Makuru, people have a right to infrastructure, then you can have in time a neighborhood that is developed, may not be formally developed as uh, someone sitting in New York might design a neighborhood but it's still got services, it's got people who are stable with secure tenure, and they could actually take people and show them Kambimoto. So that ability to take small steps, to demonstrate success in one area, and then to use that success to build a momentum for change, that is really important. And the coalition is important because it becomes a platform through which progressive change can be demonstrated and gain greater legitimacy because it gets tested out with the people who sit on that coalition. True. And in, in your examples, uh, you know, the issue of community-led data is critical. Is it possible to share with our audience, you know, what is the instrumental role these coalitions provide for organized disadvantaged groups, uh, you know, in legitimizing the data they collect about their settlement uh, by, you know, planners and officials, as well as build their capacity, you know, to effectively collect information about their settlements, mm. because most of these informal settlements are invisible mm. uh, in the official statistics. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And I know of your own interest in data. I mean, you're absolutely right, of course. Many informal settlements are made invisible. They're invisibilized. Mm. No, it's not accidental. It's, it's easier to ignore the voice of their residents if they are made, rendered invisible. So that's a big problem. I think also one of the things that is often not given sufficient attention is the ways in which low-income and disadvantaged people have their agency taken from them because they are made to feel inadequate. They're made to feel that they're less capable. They're made to feel that their problems are their own responsibility. So there is a very toxic psychology often associated with that level of disadvantage. So how does data collection help that process? I think one of the things I've observed is that as communities start to collect data, they 
start to recognize how much they know about their own neighborhoods. So it sounds crazy in a way, but just the process of bringing people together, me listening to you explain what access to services you've got. You may be listening to me when I explain what access to services I've got. Doing that with 50 or 100 neighbors, you find that you gather data no? and you are very confident about your data because it's your lived experience. You don't feel inadequate in any sense. You feel absolutely confident that if someone comes from a university and asks you about this, you'll be able to say, this is exactly how it is. And Diana or Izana explained it to me thus. So you're confident about your ground. And then when they bring that to a coalition, to a, a platform where they share a table with officials, with other academics, with potentially enterprise leaders, with other community groups, maybe NGOs, maybe professionals. And people say, oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Or people recognize the value in what they've done. And in many cases, the officials say, I should know that, but unfortunately, we don't have the resources to collect that data. Or the census, it was good in the formal areas, but the people who were doing the census, you know, we know they didn't do the informal areas properly. So they get recognition. So on the one hand, they're doing something they're very confident about. Their expertise can be challenged, but they're confident they can meet those challenges. And then they have recognition that there's a public value to the information they've collected. And that builds their confidence. It builds their capabilities, but perhaps more than their capabilities, it gives them a recognition as individuals that they have something to contribute to the public interest. And that gives them power. And they start to become more confident. They become bolder in what they offer and they get more recognition. So it sets off this virtuous circle, really a virtuous cycle where they they are able to grow and to dialogue more effectively and to press their needs and interests. They articulate better their needs and interests. So data is powerful uh, because communities can produce it, produce very high quality data, and it's a recognized public need. Perfect. We can, you know, talk about this, you know, forever, but uh, just we need to wrap it up. But as a final question, what do you, you know, as as a person who have uh, re- researched, you know, urban reforms, urban development, what, what are your uh, recommendations on the future research agenda on inclusive uh, urban uh, reform? And together with this, I would also like to add about the conference that ACRC is organizing uh, in June 2023. ACRC is organizing a conference on uh, inclusive uh, urban reform coalition. So what's the objective of the uh, conference, you know, in advancing our understanding about urban reform coalitions? So thank you. Um, The first question is easy for me because I don't think it's for me to say. So one of the things that we've tried to do uh, with the idea of urban reform coalitions is encourage different participants at the city level, but also in the African Cities Research Consortium domains to think about coalitions. Our domains bring together people from different sectors with different ideas and different experiences to address core challenges within African cities. We have eight domains, one looking at macroeconomics, one looking at microeconomics, one looking at land and connectivity, one at housing, one in informal settlements. 
and then three more socially oriented domains, youth and capability development, safety and security, and uh, health, well-being and nutrition. So in the cities and the domains, we've really asked people to think about the significance of coalitions within their cities, in their areas of specialism. So I think the idea has landed well. Indeed, earlier today, I was discussing with Professor Schweib Lasser, who built up the Urban Action Lab in the University of Makerere in Kampala. Schweib is now based in the Netherlands, but he's still closely aligned to the Urban Action Lab, which is a good example of an academically nurtured coalition, a platform to bring together different voices and perspectives in dialogue to address challenges and advance policy, programming and practice. So Schweib has really also been thinking about how do I understand this concept of a coalition? How can I use it to work out how to address in his case, his specialism around climate change mitigation and adaptation. So the simple answer to the question about future research needs is that we will be considering it in these different spaces within African cities. People are not obliged to use it. We're asking them to think about it. Is it a useful way of understanding how to catalyze urban reform, create change and embed change, ensure change is living change, able to adapt to changing contexts and new challenges and new voices. So the agenda will come out of that. Now, as you said, we have the Hallsworth uh, funded conference coming up where we're going to be looking at a wider range of experiences with coalitions. And that to me is really a chance to test out the way the African Cities Research Consortium is contributing to and refining this concept with other people who've also thought about coalitions in the urban context and also use the concept to really try and think about either how reform has happened and why it's failed or been successful or how reform might happen and what's going to make the difference between um, a good idea and something that actually transforms the lives of a majority of urban citizens. So the conference will give us a chance to really draw on a wider set of expertise and knowledge as we think about this concept going forward. Thank you. I'm also looking forward to it. I have uh, finished the question that I highlighted, but let me give you an opportunity for you to say something that we have never discussed. Uh, I hadn't thought about that question. I, I would say, I think where I sit, it's really important to recognize the diversity of efforts around coalition building. In some cases, they're driven by interest from uh, the state. So some local governments, for example, really take very seriously the challenge to be participatory and think about how they can catalyze a platform that draws together other voices in ways that those voices are not dominated by the state, you know, that the people can talk and reflect and think about how to plan and how to implement in participatory ways. In other cases, coalitions are catalyzed by frustrated urban social movements who, as you suggested, want to move from contention or want to have more strategies than contention. They want to find ways to collaborate, ways to co-produce, ways to share maybe frustrations before they manifest themselves in demonstrations and protests, street protests. And then in some cases, they've been nurtured in academic institutions like the Urban Action Lab, who recognizes that if academics are going to really 
move beyond academic walls into thinking about policy and programming, that a first step is such a platform that brings together different voices. So I think one one observation that I would make is that while it's very much up to different researchers, different uptake specialists, community groups involved in the African Cities Research Consortium to work out where this agenda goes. I think for me, it's always important to recognize that our efforts have to be diverse, that to create robust innovation really means nurturing difference and looking at the different approaches that different domains take, that different cities take, and understanding the strengths and weaknesses within those different approaches. So thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Diana Maitlin. It is interesting. Thank you. Thank you.